Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, listeners, to your Monday episode. A repaired and healed audio track straight from the 1940s of Sherlock Holmes and today, the ever-contemptuous Watson. He's a little more uppity than usual, especially near the end of the episode, but Holmes is rather patient, as always. This was previously an episode unairable on this podcast due to the sheer damage to the clip, but having recently learned some new tricks on my own, not only is it listenable, but definitely enjoyable. Before we start, a huge hip-hop hooray to my newest Earl Grey enforcer, Leah Fassig. Welcome, welcome, you lovely support to you. You are one of my ill grain forces now, and mate, thank you so, so much. You're helping this show revitalize old and effectively dead audio, support authors, and punch up when it comes to storytelling. Every dollar we do goes back into production, so thank you so much. Now, get cozy, I have my tea ready to go, and let's listen to a resurrected classic. Enjoy. And now it's time to keep the weekly appointment with our good friend, Dr. Watson. How are you this evening, Doctor? I never felt better, thank you, Mr. Bartell. Draw up a usual chair and make yourself comfortable. Thanks. That's it. All right, see, you've had the old tin dispatch box out again. I suppose you've been going through your notes on tonight's new Sherlock Holmes adventure? Yes, Mr. Bartell, and I think you'll find it as pretty a little problem as we ever encountered. The story began in 1887. A very busy year for us, my boy. It was the same year that Holmes solved the case of the Amateur Mendicant Society, who held their meetings in a luxuriously furnished vault below a furniture warehouse. Oh, I remember that story, Doctor. And uh, wasn't 87 the year you both escaped from death in the Paradol Chamber? It was indeed. You've got a very good memory, Mr. Bartell. The story I'm going to tell you tonight topped off this unusually exciting year. It was late in October, and the equinoctial gales had set in with exceptional violence. All day the wind had howled and the rain had beaten against the windows of our Baker Street lodgings. Finally, it was nearly midnight, as far as I remember. The storm grew higher and louder, and the wind in the chimney sobbed like a child. Suddenly, much to our surprise, the doorbell jangled, and a few moments later, our midnight visitor stood before us. He was a man of about 45, and as he looked about him anxiously in the glare of the lamp, I could see that his face was pale and that his eyes heavy like those of a man who was weighed down with some great anxiety. And when he spoke, his tone was businesslike and almost aggressive. I've come to you for advice, Mr. Holmes. That's easily obtained. And help. That is not always so easy. Help the gentleman off with his coat, will you, Watson? Here you are, sir. Let me hang it up for you. Thank you, sir. I heard of you, Mr. Holmes, from Major Prendergast. Oh, yes. He said that you could solve anything. I'm afraid he said too much. But you've never been beaten. I've been beaten four times, sir. Three times by men and once by a woman. But supposing you sit down and introduce yourself. Uh, my friend's name is Watson, Dr. Watson. How do you do, sir? How do you do, Doctor? My name is Lovelace, Edmund Lovelace. And what brings you to me at this hour of the night, Mr. Lovelace? I'm in terrible trouble, Mr. Holmes. You don't know anything about me, but if you'll accept my case, you can save four lives. I wouldn't say that I know nothing about you, sir. No, it's true that I know little beyond the somewhat obvious facts that... Uh, 
Well, you're single, <clears throat> that you keep a dog, but not a manservant. And that you are much preoccupied with your business, which I take to be some form of insurance. Oh, come, come, come. Oh, steady. Now, what is this? Well, I, magic? I'll wager that my friend's right, though. Isn't he, Mr. Lovelace? Perfectly. But I'll be hanged if I can see how he knows it. It's a practical application of logic, sir. The briefcase that you carry might at first indicate a barrister or some other professional man, but your brusque, business-like manner counteracts that suggestion. An insurance broker who must visit clients at odd hours is the likeliest man to combine that manner with a briefcase at midnight. But uh, the wife and the manservant and the fact that I'm preoccupied with my business. Uh, your cufflinks don't match, sir. Each is from a different pair. That would suggest preoccupation, and it's a mistake that neither a wife nor manservant would have allowed to pass. Yes, yes, but how about the dog? Um... Oh, surely that's obvious, Watson. Well, I can't see it. I shall let you ponder on that matter while Mr. Lovelace tells us his problem. Mr. Holmes, are you as interested in preventing a murder as in solving one? Well, naturally, I am, Mr. Lovelace. Even more so. But uh, uh, please tell me your story. I live with four cousins of mine in an old house in Camberwell. My grandfather left the house and a sizable fortune to the five of us on condition that we lived together and maintained the family unity. It probably will surprise you to know that we've grown to get pretty much on each other's nerves. Well, what happens if one of you dies, Mr. Lovelace? His share is divided among the others, Doctor. The wonder to me is, sir, that uh, not that a murder may take place, but... Uh, that it has not happened long ago. Who's responsible for the administration of the estate? My cousin Gerald. He's much older than the rest of us, and he's a thoroughly unpleasant, cantankerous man. Yeah. He gets an extra share in the estate as administrator, and in consequence, he doesn't work. We feel, of course, that he lives off us, and we're continually quarreling with him about it. Well, it sounds like a jolly castle, I must say. There's going to be trouble, Mr. Holmes. I know it. Gerald hates us, and he's jealous of our share in the estate. You spoke of preventing murder just now. Uh, yet I can see that you've selected your cousin Gerald as the potential murderer. Am I right? Yes, you are. Mm -hmm. But don't think it's personal prejudice that makes me suspect him. I have good reason for doing so. Oh, uh, what reason? This evening, just before dinner, I helped Gerald off with his top coat and went to hang it up for him. As I did so, I heard a strange clink in one of his pockets. I slipped my hand inside it and found a hypodermic syringe and a small pile of liquid. I opened the pile and smelled it. Gentlemen... It reeked of bitter almonds. It's a cyanide, eh? And what did you do? I thought of destroying it, but I realized that that would put him on his guard, so I replaced it in his pocket. Of course, I warned the others. And we decided that I'd come to you. I had to see a most important client tonight, or I'd have been here earlier. Yes, it seems odd that you didn't come directly to Mr. Holmes as soon as you'd made the discovery, Mr. Lovelace. After all, if a potential murderer is walking about with a pocket full of cyanide, mm -hmm. I should have thought that, that itself was more important than business. Well, I... Uh... Yes, I, I suppose it might seem so to you, Doctor. Now, that's the most interesting stick you carry, sir. May I examine it? Of course. Here. Oh, thank you. <laughs> now I see how you deduced that Mr. Lovelace had a dog home. There are the marks of the dog's teeth on the stick. Yes, my dear Watson, but these marks under scrutiny give us some more specific information. He's a large dog. You've had him for some years, Mr. Lovelace, and he's now old and feeble. Well, you're perfectly right, but... I'll be hanged if I can see how you can tell that from looking at a walking stick. <laughs> this stick is covered with teeth marks, therefore it has been carried many times by the dog. Now it's uh, a heavy stick, so only a large dog could have carried it. And the teeth marks also indicate a large jaw. The older marks are deep sunk. Look here. The fresh ones, where the wood has not yet darkened, are shallow. Yes, it's obvious that the jaws are losing their strength. That's very clever of you, Mr. Holmes, but... I don't see what it has to do with the case in hand. Oh, neither do I, Holmes. I must confess. No, surely it tells us that your story, Mr. Lovelace, may bear a less terrifying implication than you think. On the other hand, its implication may be even more terrifying. 
Oh, it's late at night. I feel that any further delay in this matter would be extremely dangerous. I suggest that we'll get a cab and come to your house in Camberwell at once. Alice, Randolph, I'm glad you're still up. I was able to persuade Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson to come back with me. Gentlemen, this is my cousin, Alice Harley. How do you do? How do you do, Miss Harley? How do you do? And my cousin, Randolph Lovelace. How do you do? How do you do, sir? How do you do, Mr. Lovelace? I've told him about the whole business, Randolph, so we can all speak perfectly freely. Let's begin by sitting down, shall we? Randolph and I had just finished a little cold supper. We've been to the theater tonight. Well, Mr. Holmes, I... I suppose Edmund told you about finding the hypodermic syringe. And the cyanide in Gerald's coat pocket. Yes, indeed. May I ask where your cousin, uh, Gerald Lovelace, is now? We left the house at seven, but I imagine Gerald went upstairs at eight, as usual. Didn't he, Edmund? On the stroke of eight, Alice. He's very fixed in his habits, Mr. Holmes. He goes up to his room every night at eight. There he reads or works on his accounts and eventually goes to bed any time between ten and one. But he might still be up. I should like to speak to him a little later. In the meanwhile, may I ask you two young people, tell me quite honestly your feelings about your cousin, Gerald? And you might as well be frank. I've kept nothing back. All right. Randolph and I hate him. First of all, we're sure he's jealous of our shares in the estate, and and then we... Alice and I want to get married, Mr. Holmes, and Gerald won't hear of it. But you're your cousins, aren't you? Only second cousins, Dr. Watson. Gerald is dreadfully conventional. He's threatened us that if we do get married, he'll go to court and have our shares in the estate annulled. And from the way the will is worded, I wouldn't be surprised if he could do it. So you can see why we have no great love for him. Why we're afraid of him. He sounds an extremely unpleasant person to me. You, you mentioned there were five cousins in the house. Three of you are here. Mr. Gerald Lovelace is upstairs. And uh, where is the fifth cousin? The fifth cousin is my brother, Gilly. He's something of a tragedy, I'm afraid. You see... Gilly's 20, but he, he never developed mentally beyond the, the age of eight. He had a bad fall in the hunting field when he was a kid. He's been like this ever since. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, sir. But he's the dearest, most gentle boy you've ever met. And, incidentally, the one person in this house who doesn't hate Gerald. The poor fellow doesn't understand the conditions of the will, I suppose. No, but if he did, I don't think it'd make any difference. I swear that Gilly loves every living thing, especially Gladstone. Gladstone is the name of his dog. His dog? Yes. The dog may be the key to this whole matter. The dog? What makes you say that, Holmes? When a man brings a quick and painless poison home to a household containing an old and feeble dog, it's more than possible that he has obtained that poison quite legitimately to give the dog a merciful death. To kill Gladstone? Oh, no! After all, Alice, dear, he is old and almost blind But, now. Mr. Holmes, if you think Gerald brought home the poison to put Gladstone out of the way, well, and I admit it sounds perfectly logical, what made you decide to come here tonight? Because I dare not even guess what you may have done by intruding the thought of murder in this situation. Uh, where is your brother, Gilly? In his room upstairs, asleep. I wonder if we might go up to him. I should like to talk to him, if you don't mind. And after that, I, I want a few words with your cousin, Gerald Lovelace. He's asleep, Mr. Holmes. Yes, with, it, with a dog in his arm. Mm. I'm afraid we'll have to waken him. Gilly? Gilly? That's all right, Gladstone. We're not going to hurt him. Gilly? Hmm? Who, who is it? Oh, hello, Alice. 
Who are these men? They've come to take Gladstone away. No, no, Gilly, we, we haven't. Well, of course not, Gilly. We've just come to admire him. Your brother's been telling us what a fine dog he is. Oh, that's different. He Isn't he beautiful? I, I just had such a wonderful dream about him. Oh, such a wonderful dream. What was it, Gilly? Hmm? Well, he, he was all young again. Just a puppy. He, he was chasing a rabbit across a clifftop. And, and, and I was running with him. Oh, Glaston looked so beautiful. Didn't you, old boy? <laughs> of course you did. And, and you know, the rabbit went down a hole and, and Gladstone went down after him. And I went down after Gladstone. And, and we all had tea with the rabbits. Oh. So funny. They all had little green hats on. Hats with, with feathers. I wanted Glaston to try one on, but he wouldn't. So sleepy. Come on, Gladstone. Let's go back to the tea party. Okay. Mm. This world may be a great deal more pleasant than ours, Watson. That's what I'd like to think, Mr. Holmes. Now I'd like to have a few words with your cousin Gerald. His room's at the end of this corridor. I'm afraid Gilly wasn't much help to you, Mr. Holmes. On the contrary, young lady. He told me exactly what I wanted to know. Here we are. This is Gerald's room. There's no light under the door. He must have gone to sleep. I'm afraid we must waken him, too. Hmm. Must be a heavy sleeper. But he isn't. He's a remarkably light one. Come on, let's go in. Strike a match, will you, old fellow? Uh, sure. The gas mantle's at the head of his bed, Dr. Watson. Yeah. Well, he's lying on the outside of his bed. He must be... There's blood on the pillow. Great Scott Holmes, the back of his skull smashed in. He's been murdered. <gasps> oh, no! Horrible! Yes, Watson, but not from the blows on his head. Look here on the table by his bed. Hypodermic syringe and a broken file. Yes, a broken file. Reeking of bitter almonds. Poor devil. Well, I won't pretend I liked him. But what a ghastly way to die. All they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. So the scriptures say, Mr. Lovelace. The very suspicion of the killing has brought murder to pass. Well, it's too late to prevent it. Our job now is to find the killer and see that he's brought to justice. Well, Dr. Watson, so you found Gerald Lovelace dead in one of the bedrooms of the house in Camberwell. Uh, what did you do? Send for the police? Not at once, Mr. Bartell. Sherlock Holmes persuaded the remainder of the household to give him the opportunity of examining the scene of the crime carefully before the police were sent for. And so, a few minutes before one o'clock that October night, Holmes and I stood alone in the room of death. Get a little higher, will you, old chap? Sure. You know, Holmes, I think you should have sent for the police right away. In a case like this, Watson, I prefer to be my own police. When I have spun the web... They may take the flies, but not before. What are the results of your medical examination, old chap? Well, it's exactly as you reconstructed it, Holmes. He was first beaten on the head with that poker lying on the floor. Then he had the full file of cyanide injected into his left... Was... Can you estimate the time of death to yeah. accurately? No, this room's confoundedly hot. He might have died any time from one to five hours ago. Yes. Now one o'clock, and we know that he was alive at eight. Edmund Lovelace... Saw him leave for his room at that hour. Yes, if he was telling the truth. One thing we do know for a fact is that this man was murdered at the exact moment he was going to bed. He's wearing his nightgown and nightcap, but his 
bed has not been slept in. Well, is it possible the murderer might have killed him shortly after eight and then dressed him in his night clothes to confuse us? No, my dear chap. You will notice that the hypodermic knee yeah. the must have the sleeve of his nightshirt. Yeah. Also, the nightcap is crushed and bloodstained from the blows of the poker. No, Harold Lovelace had prepared for bed. Yes. With a glass of water on the night table and the, the prayer book and the watch. Yes. Signs of a prosperous and meticulous man. Mm-hmm. Very fine gold watch and in excellent condition. Aha. Uh-huh. There's the answer, Watson. What do you mean, there's the answer, Watson? I just wound this watch one turn and then it was fully wound. That provides us with a time schedule for our murder. Come on. We'll send a servant for the police, and while they're on the way, if you'll call everything together, I should like to put a few more questions to this family. Before the police arrive, I should like to hear your statements again very carefully, if you don't mind. Mr. Edmund Lovelace... What were your exact movements tonight? I left here shortly before ten. From ten o'clock until the time I came to Baker Street, I was with my client. His name and address, please. Derek Waterlow, 39, Onslow Square, South Kensington. Thank you. Make a note of these, will you, Watson? At your home. You, Miss Harley, and you, Mr. Randolph, please. Went to the theatre together. Can any witness testify as to your movements? Yes, Mr. Holmes. We went with friends, the Grant Moresby's. They live at the Clarendon Hotel off Charing Cross. What time did you leave this house? Well, it it was about a quarter to eight, wasn't it, Alice? Yes. And after the play, we went to the Café Royale for a little refreshment with our friends and then came back here. I see. And what time did you arrive back at this house? Just a few minutes before midnight. I remember the grandfather clock in the hall striking just as we went into the drawing room. And your brother Gilly, sir. I hate to waken him again. Have you any idea of his movements tonight? Well, he never goes out after dark. But I spoke to the cook as we came in tonight. She says that he played cards with her until just after ten o'clock. He was fast asleep when I looked in on him shortly after midnight. Thank you. You've made a note of all these facts, Watson. Yes, Holmes, I got them all down. Good. Then let's be on our way to Baker Street. But the police, Mr. Holmes, they're on their way. I know. Uh, uh, please give them my regards, will you? Apologize for my informality and tell them that I shall have the answer to this matter probably in a little over twenty-four hours. Here it is, well after midnight. You haven't done a thing on the Camberwell case. No, but you have, old chap. You've checked on all the time alibis and found them valid. I'm much obliged to you. Inspector Lestrade was here tonight, you know, and he made some pretty caustic remarks, I can tell you. Oh, didn't you inform him that I'll uh, have the answer to the problem before many hours have passed? Uh, But you know, Lestrade, he he wanted action. (laughs) He shall have it. Is the watch still running? Yes, another thing. What will Lestrade say when he finds that you took the... The dead man's watch. I've no idea. Oh, why did you take it anyway? You sound sleepy, old chap. Yes, I am confoundedly sleepy. Well, why don't you go to bed? Oh, what are you going to do? Continue my vigil with my pipe and the watch of a dead man. Watson! Watson, wake up! Uh, what time is it? Five o'clock in the morning. Good Lord, what are you doing up at this hour? The watch has just stopped. I'm about to rewind it. What are you rewinding it for, Holmes? You waited over 24 hours for it to unwind. When I know high turns it takes to wind it fully, I shall have the answer to the whole business. 10, 
Eleven. You're being confoundedly mysterious, as usual. Fourteen. Fourteen turns, and the watch is fully wound. Get your clothes on, old chap. Where are we going on this hour? To the house in Camberwell. Now I know who murdered Gerald Lovelace. Edmund Lovelace, I'm glad you let us in. Please take us up to your young cousin's room at once. Really? What do you want with him? I'll explain in a moment. Please take us up to him. Of course, but what brings you here at this hour of the morning? Mr. Holmes knows who murdered your cousin. I'm glad to hear it. It's more than the police seem to know. They were here half the night cross-examining us. Here we are. I don't think we'll bother to knock. Gilly. Gilly? I'm awake. We heard you coming up the stairs. Didn't we, Gladstone? It's the same man again. You're not going to take Gladstone away, are you? Please don't take him away. Oh, worry, Gilly. We're not going to touch him. Oh. All right, then. Oh, Gilly. Yes? You really love that dog, don't you? Of course I do. More than anything or, or anybody. I believe you'd even kill a man who tried to hurt Gladstone, wouldn't you? Oh, yes, sir. I would. Gilly! No. Good shot, I... Gilly, I don't think you'd really kill a man. I don't think you could. <laughs> Couldn't I, though? How would you kill him? I'd hit him first. I'd take a poker, I'd take him on the head so he couldn't fight back. And then I'd take the nasty needle he told me he was going to stick in Gladstone, and, and, and I'd fill it full of that water he showed me, and I'd stick it in him. That's what I'd do. Then he'd be dead. And he couldn't hurt my Gladstone anymore. Not ever. <laughs> Let's leave him, shall we? Goodbye, Gilly. Pleasant sir? dreams. Goodbye, sir. Good old Gladstone. You satisfied, sir? Yes. Poor Gilly. There's no doubt about it, of course. Of course. Oh, can there be no one who described the murder to him, and yet he's just given an exact description of its method? Well, well uh, what'll happen to him, they... They won't try him. No, 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 no. A little pressure in the right places and he'll be released to a private nursing home. I'll do everything I can, Mr. Lovelace. Thank you, Mr. Holmes. Thank you very much. Well, Holmes, now that we're back in Baker Street and the whole pressing case is finished with, perhaps you'll tell me how you knew that... He had committed the murder. Well, consider the uh, time schedules, old fellow. You checked the alibi of the other cousins and found them satisfactory. That meant that um, Alice Harley and uh, Randolph Lovelace could have committed the crime only at midnight. Edmund, only before ten. Gilly, only around eleven. You said that the uh, time of death could have been at any of those hours. Yes, I did. So how did you pin it down to, uh, to eleven? The watch gave me the specific answer. When I picked it up, unthinkingly wound it. Made one turn and was then fully wound. Now, when does a methodical, precise man like Gerald Lovelace wind his watch? Just he's going to bed. Exactly, old fellow. So that it was obvious that he was killed precisely one watch stem turn before I wound his watch. Now I'm beginning to see daylight, Holmes. So you let the watch run down. That's what I did. It took uh, 28 hours from 1 o'clock the night before last until 5 this morning. Now, how many turns did it take to rewind it? 14. Huh? That's right. Therefore, one turn of the watch stem equaled two hours, proving 
that Gerald Lovelace had been murdered two hours before one o'clock at 11 p.m. When Gilly was the only one who could have done it. You know, Holmes, I still find it hard to believe that boy was capable of such a ghastly crime. He seemed so gentle. Oh, he is, he is. Except when his beloved dog's life was at stake, probably out of some mistaken notion of kindness, Gerald Lovelace warned the boy of his intentions regarding the dog. Oh, it's a sad business, Watson, a sad business. I hate to think of that boy spending the rest of his life in a mental home. I have one prayer for his future. What's that, Holmes? <clears throat> the dog Dodson can't live very long. I pray that Gilly does not long outlive him. Doctor, that was a remarkable bit of deduction on the part of Mr. Holmes. Yes, extremely clever, wasn't it? Of course, and I may say so, I was of some small help myself. Small help? Why, Doctor, you practically solved the case by yourself. Oh, I wouldn't go as far as saying that. But, Doctor, you did check all the alibis, didn't you? Yes, I checked where each suspect was at various times. Yes, you checked time. And what's more important than time? Well, Why, I... Doctor, time is even vitally important when it comes to wine. I was wondering how you were going to bring that in. And one thing we do know, Petrie took time to bring you good wine. It's just got to be good. You know, you can't be in the wine business as long as the Petri family without really learning all about the fine art of making wine. And don't forget, the Petri family has been making fine wine since way back in the 1800s. So, naturally, they've been able to hand on down from father to son, from father to son, the result of generations of experience at turning luscious, sun-ripened grapes into fragrant, delicious wine. No matter what type of wine you prefer, You'll like it more if it's a Petri wine, because Petri took time to bring you good wine. Well, Dr. Watson, what new Sherlock Holmes story do you plan to tell us next week? Well, now, next week, Mr. Bartell, I'm going to tell you a most unusual adventure that Holmes and I had when we were attending a performance at the Opera House in Rome. It concerns a famous singer who lost her voice, an understudy who was nearly lynched, and a murder that baffled the police. I call it the adventure of... Terrifying cat. Well, that's a story we've got to hear. Thank you, Mr. Bartell. And before you go, I want to talk to our friends about their war bonds. You know, during the war, the best investment we could find was a United States war bond. And for my money, they're still a great investment. They're called United States savings bonds now, and only the name is changed. Savings bonds are sold in the same denominations and give you all the same advantages. And you can buy savings bonds at the same places at your bank or your post office or through the payroll savings plan. So invest all you can in United States savings bonds because you cannot find a better or a safer investment. I hope you enjoyed this episode, mate. My favourite part of this episode is about 18 minutes in where Watson has verbally declared that he'd had enough of Holmes' usual mysterious and cryptic behaviour and Holmes just brushes it off and completely ignores him. I particularly like the part where Holmes says, you should go to sleep, Watson. And Watson just yawns and goes, what are you going to do? Ah, that kind of banter seems somewhat legit. And in this episode, he's basically treating him more like a talking post to bounce ideas off of physically instead of actually the exchange of ideas. Oh, goodness, I love these old classics. 
and the ending to this one. Goodness, I actually thought at some point the family had actually used the 20 year old with the brain injury to kill on their behalf. But it was definitely a lot simpler than that. Sometimes the simplest stories are always the most enjoyable. Now, if you want to support me in the podcast, visit my Patreon page where you can donate to support the show like Leah Fasig has. Visit www.patreon.com forward slash SFGT. As I don't run ads, your support really pushes the podcast along and it always goes back into production. So every single dollar, I'm super grateful for. And now, I want to take the time to tell you about my Patreon supporters. Queen of the Felines. Princess of Everything Fine. Maya. Mate, thank you as always for sending this podcast to the moon. With your support, I've been able to continue my work in the RX-8 space, remastering and healing audio almost every single day now. You can hear the changes made in today's episode thanks to your support. It's not 100% perfect, but if you heard the original, it's like day and night. Sometimes I can repair the audio completely, and other times it leaves artifacts. But either way though, it's a much, much better experience than before. Hell, it's allowing us to hear audio that probably wouldn't be bearable usually. Thanks to you, we all benefit. Thanks again, Maya. And my white tea warlord, Les of Bauer, mate, thank you immensely for your support. Your brilliant donations are flying straight into upkeep this month and ensuring my website stays up and running. And also applying a new set of WordPress modifiers to see if I can get this website to perform even better. Thank you, Lezza. You're a bloody superstar. And my second white tea warlord, Paige the Almighty Sage, thank you as always for your lovely support. This month's support is heading straight into more audio, both music and sound effects, which I'll be using this Wednesday and Friday. That means more f- That means more fantasy audio, low drone effects, crashes, explosion, chopping sounds, you name it. More of everything, thanks to your support. So cheers, Paige, for being awesome. And the peeps that put that electric pep in my step. My Earl Grey enforcers, I'm lucky to have Chad Warren, Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Tea Time Drinker 1, Divided by Zero, and Leah Fassig. Thank you all for being brilliant. Welcome again, Leah, to the Enforcer Troop, and I'll see you all Wednesday for tales of a different kind altogether. Thanks, and as always, till next we meet.